Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents The Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist, featuring your hosts, Heisey Lutmers and Charlie Harrington. The Amethyst Oracle. Delve into life, death, and everything betwixt, between, and beyond. Between, and beyond. Between, and beyond. With a queer twist. The Amethyst Oracle. Divination with a queer twist. And now, and now, here are your hosts, your hosts Charlie, Charlie Harrington and Heisey And welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you for listening this evening. My name is Heisey, and I am one of the hosts of the Amethyst Oracle, co-hosting with Charlie Harrington. He'll be with us momentarily. I think he was just having a little connection issue, but he should be on here fairly soon. Um, While we wait to get him connected, I'll just let you know that you can always find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theamethystoracle. Um, And we always welcome your comments, your insights, your additions to the conversation, Um, anything that we're talking about or any techniques or anything that we do on the show, we'd always be happy to hear from you about if you try them out, how it works for you, or if you have some other interpretations of cards or something that you might hear us talk about. That's especially true for something like tonight, because one of the things that Charlie and I are going to be talking about, we've each chosen cards, a card from each suit to represent abundance for each of us. And we would love for you to visit the Facebook page and tell us what card in each suit you feel represents uh, abundance and like what card in the pentacle suit, what card in the sword suit, etc. might represent abundance to you. Um, And we would love to hear from you on the Facebook page for that. Um, If you would like to get a reading during the show this evening, Charlie and I will be doing readings for people, you can Skype in from the show page or you can call in 646-716-5510 and feel free to call in at any time during the show in order to get in the queue. Uh, Quite often there are a number of people who are waiting to um, get a reading and so we can't always get to everyone depending on how many people there are, so the sooner you get in the queue, uh, the better it is. Um, so again, if you want a reading tonight, then either Skype in or call 646-716-5510. And I believe when you do that, it'll ask you um, if you want to speak to the hosts or ask a question or something, and you just press 1 to do that. That gives us a little indication for the people that are in the phone queue, those that are waiting to get a reading on air versus people that are just listening. So. With that little housekeeping out of the way, I will go ahead and welcome my co-host, Charlie Harrington. Hello, Charlie. Welcome right back at you. How are you? I am good. I'm I'm happy to have you here this evening. Good to be here. (laughs) And, And I'm hoping that everyone is able to be listening this evening. I actually realized that there might have been a little snafu. Thank you, Mercury Retrograde, and thank goodness it's over as of Sunday. Uh, <laughs> that means I can't blame any of my problems on Mercury Retrograde anymore, though. I know. You're going to have to start owning your own problems, Charlie. I'm sorry. Uh, honestly. 
I know. Or <laughs> you just don't mention the problems, and then you wait till the next Mercury retrograde, and then you just blame all of the problems at once on Mercury retrograde. Just store Excellent. up all of the problems. <clears throat> so here we are in November. And for the U.S. anyway, that uh, is uh, the month of our holiday Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And it, well, hello. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, uh, and with that, both I think with Thanksgiving as well as just heading into the overall holiday season as we head into December with Yule and Christmas and New Year's and Hanukkah, um, there's a lot of buzz, a lot of um, focus that starts to happen around the idea of things like abundance and mm. prosperity. Um, and, you know, sadly, we are also reminded at this time of year when things happen, like in the Philippines, um, it, it perhaps makes it more stark for us to remember what we have and how fortunate we are when we see what can happen and when other people are suddenly struck by the typhoon that was in the Philippines and have everything taken away so quickly and easily. It really does. And I was really struck by the fact that the day I heard about it, I was talking with people and we're all just sort of thinking like, oh, did that happen? Is it bad? Is it not bad? And I was looking at the news. Oh, it says it's not that bad. And then I looked and I, uh, you know, at the stories that were coming out of the Philippines and I just felt it was devastating how awful it was. So um, Peter Dibbing, Dibbling, Dibbing, pagan activist, uh, posted about donating to relief efforts. So I went ahead and I recommend everyone, you'll feel so great about yourself. I went ahead and donated to Doctors Without Borders. You can go on their site and you can earmark your donation. So it specifically goes to, I'm going to get this wrong, Typhoon Haiyan Relief. And um, I tried to donate to the Philippines Red Cross, but I was having trouble with, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, conversion rates. I was trying to donate 50 bucks, and it kept, like, the conversion rate. I thought I was trying to donate $1.49. So so Doctors Without Borders made it very easy, and uh, I recommend if anyone's listening... Yeah, uh, and I'm glad that you said that because I was also going to suggest that as well, that if people would consider making some sort of donation. And even you can just go on iTunes and make a donation. Oh, Um, that's cool. If if you're an iTunes user, just go into the iTunes store and they have a thing right there that you can click on in order to make a a donation um, for Typhoon Relief or whatever. Um, You know, so fortunately... There are places that you can do it that are reputable, which is always mm-hmm. sometimes a concern because these kind of things sadly also bring out the scam artists. Um, but there's places that are both reputable and very easy to do it. Um, so thank you for mentioning that. And Doctors Without Borders is a great organization. I can't say enough about what they do. <laughs> um, so with that theme in mind, you and I had talked and... We we had talked about how a lot of times if people are familiar with the Tarot, generally they will think about the suit of pentacles as kind of the suit of abundance and prosperity, mm-hmm. especially on a material level. Um, and so we wanted to challenge both ourselves as well as everybody listening to think about each suit in the, the, the deck. So the wands, swords, pentacles 
cups and major arcana suits. And to choose one card from each suit that you feel represents abundance. I think it's so important to think about where these things exist in each suit because a lot of times you hear from beginners that when they were doing a reading for their friend, their friend asked one question, but the cards, I'm making bunny fingers, the cards decided to answer a different question. And when you examine that further, you find that maybe that the person asked about their job and the cards that came up were like the two of cups and the the six of cups. And they said, oh, okay, what this is actually answering is your relationship. And that's a very understandable but beginner kind of mindset with tarot to think that each of the suit only answers a particular type of question. So I was excited for you and I to see how does abundance appear in each of the suits so that, you know, whenever you're doing a reading and someone wants to know about prosperity and abundance, you don't have to tell them, actually, this is going to be, um, you know, about your sex life instead. <laughs> right. And, and even if you're listening and you don't know the tarot, if you're not fil- familiar with the tarot, I think what you'll also find is as we talk about the cards we chose, it may give you some different perspectives or some different um, uh, threads to follow in terms of how you might define and think about abundance as well. Um, because just like you were saying, Charlie, in terms of people, especially that are beginners to the tarot, think very narrow of, well, the cup suit is only about love and relationships and emotions. So obviously that can't have anything to do with the job. Um, I think that we can also be very narrow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think we can also be very narrow in our way of thinking about things like abundance. And, you know, we might only think about abundance, meaning I have a million dollars in the bank versus there's many, many different ways to think about and define what abundance is. But Mm -hmm. we often lose sight of the, the, the more macro, the broader Uh, perspective and way of thinking about things. So hopefully, even if somebody isn't familiar with the Tarot, hearing us talk about these may also help to just add to their thoughts process around abundance and what that means for them in their lives, in the world. Um, So, uh, and um, another concept that you had also brought up that I think we'll talk about before we go to the cards is the idea of abundance versus the the definition of something that is too much. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times, people's minds tend to be very... It's easy for certain kinds of minds to switch to the negative of things. And you people sort of see you know you say you have a whole lot and people think a whole lot of problems or they people view i very commonly see the world card um in tarot interpreted as having the whole world on your back you know and being really weighed down and i thought that's a really interesting tarot on the world i mean certain (laughs) decks even design it that way the gay tarot included um and i thought well what are you gonna so and i've noticed you'll be in um a tarot, in talking with tarot with people, and they'll talk about the tens and the kings as being, uh, well, mainly the tens, as being time to start over. This has gone too far. The idea of 
the Ten of Cups for a reading friend of mine is uh, too much emotion, too much family gooey-ness and a need to kind of break from that. And I thought, oh, you're crazy. And then um, I do see that in the Ten of Swords where this is too much thinking, too much in our head, too much of this problem. But uh, again, people all saw it with the idea that... um, I guess it's there in the Ten of... I'm thinking of like a Rider Waite deck, like the Ten of Wands. Uh, people just sort of naturally like, okay, well, it's too much and it's time to start over, start fresh and clean. Um, and I, when, you, when you look at like the Ten of Wands, for example, in a Rider Waite-based deck, this person with, uh, you know, who strapped ten wands on their back and they're, they're hunched over and they've got a long way to go on their journey, I, I can see that. Like, instead of, rather than having an abundance, rather than having what abundance to me is like uh, a wealth of opportunity, uh, resources, this person just has a bit too much that they've taken on. So I think I've talked uh, out of both sides of my mouth on this issue. <laughs> well, but I think that that also goes to, and again, you had brought up like beginners to the tarot, but this isn't just for beginners. I think a lot of times people get stuck in this is seeing things in one way or the other. Like a lot of people think of the suit of swords as mm-hmm. the difficult, painful, negative suit, period. Yeah. So if you see swords come up, it's like, oh, no. Right. And, you know, um, and I think even with something like the word abundance, people think of abundance as only something good, but you Mm -hmm. can go into too much. And -hmm. sometimes that means it's, it can be boasting or arrogance. You know, I mean, I think of like this time of year, the the symbol a lot of times is the cornucopia. And I'm not saying that just because... Well, and I'm not saying that just because the Hunger Games is coming out this month, although I do. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there's this sense of the overflowing fruits of the harvest, you know, spilling out of the cornucopia. And, and what do we do at these holidays? It's like we overeat. You know, the, you often hear people say, oh, my gosh, we have so much food. We could feed 100 people with the food we have on the table here for our family kind of thing. And on the one hand, if that makes us be grateful and be, to recognize the abundance we have, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I think it may also slip into we try to over overcompensate or overshow the abundance. And it almost becomes a prideful ego thing. Because I, I actually don't like to overeat, nor do I like to see a table full of food that is going to be three times more than what everyone is going to be able to eat. Because I'm also very cognizant of people that don't have anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you also see this with people that win the lottery. Everybody thinks, oh, if I had a million dollars or $10 million or if I won the super Powerball jackpot, whatever they call it, you know, kind of thing, they think they'll suddenly be happy because they'll have this abundance of money and the ability to buy material things and all sorts of things. And very often you hear that people who won the lottery ultimately wish that they didn't because it ends up ruining their lives or they end up having a lot of difficulty as a result of that abundance because it becomes too much. So I think that it's important not only when we think of abundance, but even when we look at the tarot, to be able to approach and to look at it from all sides 
so that you don't just see certain cards as good or bad, but you're yeah. able to look at them in both ways depending on the, the situation, the, the circumstance, the context. Or you're able to stay with the question the person asked and look at the cards that came up and how they relate to that question rather than suddenly saying, well, this suit didn't come up, which would be the suit of that question. Therefore, this obviously isn't about that question. Hmm. <laughs> and, and, and that's what we were trying to do with this exercise as well is to stimulate that thought process and challenge people to look at the cards perhaps in a different way because we we normally wouldn't think to say look through the sword suit to find a card that represents abundance unless mm-hmm. it's an abundance of misery and pain and guilt <laughs> yes which which might be okay maybe somebody will choose a card because that's how they see abundance in that suit and they have a card that represents an abundance of overthinking an abundance of misery an abundance mm-hmm. of guilt kind of thing. I didn't mm-hmm. approach it that way. I was trying to look for it in terms of a positive sense of abundance. I did as well. I did as well. All right. Well, then having... Oh, and, and so you were talking about the tens. Mm-hmm. And what I found is my, my first thought was actually to go to all of the aces. Because for me, the aces represent this unlimited potential and the, the ultimate essence of the suit and the element that the suit represents. So it is, those cards are kind of about abundance because it's just like, it's unlimited. It's, it's, it's always overflowing and always accessible and there, it never it ends. You know, it's infinite, mm. um, which can be abundance. But I don't know that that is very useful abundance. Because that's what, to me, the rest of the suit is, is how do I work with and manage that in a way that is creative, productive, and useful, rather than overwhelming and just doesn't do anything? I, I would see that personally, and I have seen that um, in job readings for people, as the, that sort of the empty cornucopia that can be filled. Like the cornucopia that's actually empty, and as opposed to the cornucopia that's, copia that's full of crap you don't need. Um, so looking at the cornucopia, like to me, like the ace of cups is someone who is ready to, you know, or is filled with the emotion and they're ready for the, it to be realized in the real world. Or the ace of sword, the person who's ready for their new ideas to be manifest. It's like to me, it's, I'm not sure if this is a word, but pre-manifest, uh, unmanifest, it's, but it's, well, it, it's, it's ready. Like- yeah, it's like they rep- that empty cornucopia. It's like they represent the abundance of potential mm-hmm. yet to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So it's not abundance in the sense that we think of as something is manifested and is fulfilled and now it's overflowing. It's an abundance of what can be, but we still have to go through the rest of the suit to see how we're going to work with that and manifest that potential. So... Having said that, before I forget, I just wanted to mention, because I forgot to do so at the beginning, that um, coming up in just a few minutes, we are going to be enjoying a conversation with our guest tonight, (laughs) who is Christopher Penzak. Um, The lovely and talented, worldwide renowned author, Christopher Penzak. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Not just author, but also witch and teacher and healer, and he's, he's... He's an abundance of titles and yes. things that he does. He has earned, definitely. Yes. And so um, I would encourage people to stay tuned because I think you'll really enjoy what 
he has to say. Yeah, um, you should get in the that conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, diving into the cards that we chose, um, I, I realize these are kind of in a random order. When I was thinking about them, I ended up listing them just for me in numerical order. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I found that all of the cards that I tended to think of shied away from the upper end of the suits, which mm. is probably counter to what you would maybe reflexively think that abundance you're going to start looking at kind of the end of the suit when everything is coming into manifestation or things are starting mm. to overflow and that kind of thing. Um, so the, the first suit that we have is the suit of swords. As I said, a suit that often is not thought of in terms of abundance, at least in a good way. So Mm -hmm. what card did you choose in Swords to represent abundance? And then just just for for those listening out there, like um, I sort of approached this, trying to be as as universal as possible, I approached this imagining that the person is using a Rider Waite Smith-esque slash based tarot deck. So thought people, this one might not be for you, Marseille people, you know, you, yeah. I, I would be interested to hear their own, your... Yes, um, and, and I, I will say I did the same thing in a sense, because I wasn't really thinking of a deck in particular, I was thinking more just the, the, the general traditional kind of meanings and interpretations of the cards, rather than it being about a particular image in a deck that might evoke the idea of abundance. So I was yes. trying to be more general there. Yes. So so what, what card in the suit of so swords? So in the swords suit, it was tough. It was really tough. But I thought that the six of swords, to me, suggested abundance in that it is having everything you need. Um, it, typically, this is we think of the refugee card. There's the people. They're getting into a boat. They're leaving behind some situation. Often, you tell people, you know, leaving behind something that doesn't serve you, or you don't feel welcome, or that isn't working anymore. And on the on the people, they're bundled up. And the people most bundled up in the Rider Waite Tarot are poor. Uh, and that's the idea of. Having taking everything with you that you you need. So the people getting on this boat, you have to imagine they're leaving behind forever their home. But what they're taking with them, they have clothing, they have themselves and their health. And that is all they need to survive in their next journey. So to me, it it's not classic abundance, but it's the idea of you know, um, I think of like the Nina Simone song, like, I don't know, I've got life. And it's just that you have survived this and taking with you all that you need is in and of itself an abundance. All right. I had considered that card as well, but I ultimately chose the two of swords. Yeah. And the reason is because when I... When I was thinking about just that word abundance, I was skewing towards how we tend to think of that as a more positive kind of word or state of being. Mm -hmm. And very quickly in the suit of swords, you start to get into too much of what isn't really very productive, (laughs) too much Mm -hmm. thinking, um, carrying around too much guilt, uh, you know, those kind of things. So for me, the two of swords is after the ace where it is still 
unfulfilled potential and is still a bit too much. And the Two of Swords, at least we still are, we, we still have our wits about us in a sense. We have choices and free will in front of us, but we're still able to sit with those things and ponder those things and consider what might be the best one rather than getting caught up in all sorts of mental processes and mental games that start to quickly develop and spiral out of control as you move through the suit of swords. So for me, the two of swords was because we're still at a point where we have the abundance of potential ahead of us, and we still have an abundance of ability to look at things a little more objectively and not be so caught up in our heads that we're creating all sorts of illusion and losing sight of the reality of things. So that was why I chose Two of Swords. I like it. I like it a lot. So <laughs> moving to Wands, the suit of Wands. Yeah. Uh, originally I was thinking that Ten of Wands, and I thought, well, that's the wrong kind of abundance. That's, that's a bit much. So I think abundance lives in the Four of Wands. It is that idea of celebration for... Um, of wands being the most stable wands card, and it's the idea of celebrating life. Uh, your passions have manifested in in a real way, and they've stayed somehow. And then often people look at that picture, maybe the right way or something based on it, and think a wedding um, union. Uh, and the if you follow the narrative of the wand suit, it's the return on investment uh, sometimes the, that that two your you've got your your idea your ambition the three you take a risk and the four it's the um, the payoff and it is people celebrating um, communion and uh, the, the world is sort of your oyster it's that like to me it's like that first if you get out of college and you get your first real job, your quotey fingers, real, whatever that feels like to you, your big adult, you know, job, that to me is what the four of wands can feel like. And just that feeling of, of rapture. And my choice is very close to that. And in some ways mm -hmm. I think echoes some of the reasons you chose the four. It just mm -hmm. somehow, um, showed up for me slightly differently because I chose the mm -hmm. five of wands, um, which even surprised me because I, I sat and was just meditating on these and I allowed what card wanted to be abundance to come and then I had to think about why it would show itself and all of that. Um, and so the five of wands, I, I was surprised that a five would be abundance. Yeah. Because generally fives are thought lessons. of as very difficult and challenging. <laughs> yes. But, but I think, you know, like when you're talking about the narrative of the wands suit, um, for me, the Five of Wands is that card of hashing things out with others. It can be a battle of wills, but that's really more this idea of like a brainstorming session and everybody yeah. kind of coming together and hammering something out or throwing in all of their ideas to see what emerges. And so that to me was very much about abundance because it's a sense of there's an abundance of energy in that card. There mm -hmm. is an abundance of other people putting input into it so I'm not having to do it all myself but I have the ability to start creating something greater than myself because 
all of these other things are coming into it and coming together to create something. So that for some reason, and I think I was shying away from the upper end, like the 10, the nine of wands, because that mm. started to skew into too much, too that, much. That, that negative aspect of abundance. And so at the five, it was still at the point of not too much, but enough to be stimulating and challenging rather than just status quo. Um, and also to feel as if there's an abundance of energy and input, therefore I'm not having to try to generate all of this by myself. Mm. Um, so, you know, and, and it can be nice when you're trying to do a project or something, and you feel like everybody is in there putting in their energy, putting in their ideas um, to <laughs> okay, try and everyone move it cares. <laughs> Yes. Well, because I, I think of like project <laughs> management. Well, I think of like project management with this card, and certainly it's nicer when you're project managing something to feel as if everybody is contributing to and doing their part, rather than you're trying to herd a bunch of cats that are doing nothing and nobody wants to do anything, and it's you, you've got to drag it out of them. Um, so that was why I chose the five of wands. I like it. So then moving from there to what probably is the most thought of. The easiest one. And then the hardest one, the pentacles was hard for me because there were so many choices. And I had to really, you know, whereas where in the, the, the sword that I was grasping at swords. Um, <laughs> I, Grasp, I, grasping at air, perhaps. Yeah, air. Well, and that made me really think, like, okay, it's just too easy to be like, the entire pentacle suit except for the five. Um, but I thought, okay, the nine of pentacles for me, because where in this, and I understand where in the other suits, where the other, it can feel like too much, but I feel like pentacles does well at the end because of how manifest it is, you know, and how, how it's chugging along. So for me, the nine is the person who has gone the distance they have made their dream come true, and this is the culmination of those efforts. And the nines feel like a crescendo, you know, in tarot, whereas the ten might just be, a, I, I get what people think, it's a little static. To me, that, that nine is, and here you have everything you dreamed of, and there's that cautionary tale right, with, uh, with anything good. As uh, Louisa Tisch says, what don't kill you is fattening. Um, but there's the cautionary tale with the nine of swords, of pentacles that she's all alone typically. Um, and there's, there can be this sort of question of, uh, well, if you seek abundant material abundance, you, it's easy to put walls up around yourself, but by God, you will have nice things, you know, and that nine, it's, safe uh, because it's in that walled garden and it's very it's not a wild crazy garden typically it's 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 uh, very domestic um, and I think um, if I lean towards court cards I might have also seen the queen of pentacles for that exact same reason so that was my reason for the nine of pentacles that absolute sort of culmination of effort and I think my choice speaks to some of those issues that you were bringing up around that card because I chose the six of pentacles. And really I started to think about this and I realized I think the six of pentacles may really uh, be the ultimate representation of what I think of as true abundance. Mm. 
mm-hmm. because Six of Pentacles often is a card that is seen as philanthropy and charity, um, you know, giving to others. Um, it also is uh, a card of compromise. So again, there's a willingness to give and take. And so the reason I chose it and why I think it really reflects what I think of as abundance is at the point of the Six of Pentacles, it represents that I have more than I need so that I am able to share and give to others who may not have as much or enough. And that, to me, is what abundance is really about, is Mm. abundance says, I have everything I need and then some. And the Six of Pentacles reminds us that when we are at that point, instead of continuing to hoard it for ourselves and say, well, how can I make more so that I can buy more for myself, which may find me having lots of expensive things around me, but like that Nine of Pentacles you're talking about, I feel very alone or disconnected from the world um, Mm -hmm. or don't have anyone that is real in my life. Because think about somebody who has a lot of money. A lot of times they can never trust who is their friends because they don't know why people want to be friends with them. And so Mm. with the Six of Pentacles, there's that sense of I recognize what I have and the good fortune that I have had and that I have everything I need and I'm not going to lack anything. I may not have, if I'm going to share with others, I may not have what I want because what I would use to get what I want, I'm going to give to others who are in need of something, but I still have everything I need. And to me, that's what a real abundance is, the recognition of I'm not going without what I need, even though I may be willing to go without what I want, because as long as I have what I need, I will share the excess with the world around me so that they also are able to have what they need. So you're talking about tarot class warfare, is what you're saying. Basically. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I, I saw it when I saw your choice on our note system. I thought, oh, now that makes even more sense because this person has enough and they see themselves as having enough and able to give it away. Kind of, I thought of J.K. Rowling, who's no longer classified as a billionaire because she gives such a huge percentage of her personal wealth to charitable causes and some of her product, I don't know, I don't know, I think her new book series, most of it goes to a, a, a veterans charity. Um, and, uh, and when asked about it, she just, her mindset is such that, well, of course I'm giving, you know, I was given so much, uh, you know, to get where I am. And I, of course I would give it back and I'm not hurting, you know, like the woman is wealthy but she also is able to give of that wealth, which is a rare sort of person, maybe. Yes. Well, and it may be without getting too political. It it yeah. made me think of a lot of the arguments I hear from people that are upset about, let us say, the Affordable Care Act. Because uh-huh. over and over again, what I hear from people are, why should I have to pay for those people? Uh, and, and for me, the Six of Pentacles represents exactly the way I think about this, which is, but I can afford, I have what I need, and I have, say, health insurance. Yeah. I can afford to pay for my health insurance. And if that means it helps to reduce the cost or provide free access to health care for those that have less than I do, 
then yeah. why would I be upset about that? Yeah, what well, you know, it's a wonderful. Whereas that's the, how the nine of Whereas the nine of pentacles that you chose in terms of some of the issues you brought up around it would oh, represent more the kind of person who says, I have more than enough, but I'm certainly not going to give it to somebody else because yeah. I want my expensive things and I don't want to do without what I want whenever I want to be able to get it mm-hmm. simply because somebody else might need something. Why should I have to pay for them? And I'll, so, I'll build that, a wall and carry a hawk around. In order, right. <laughs> in order to I'll, I'll, I'll live in a gated community and wall myself away from those people so that I don't have to see them and they don't have access to me. And it's funny, a lot of tarot readers, I know we should move on, but a lot of tarot readers look at that six of, of pentacles and the first thing they'll say is, be careful of people trying to drain you. And be careful of people who are always taking and never giving back. And it's sort of like, oh, okay. Well, well yes, that's but I think that's where, but I think that goes back to when we're talking about abundance and when it goes, when it means too much. Because even mm. somebody who is giving to help others, they can also go to the extreme and give too much and then end up not having what they need. Mm-hmm. And again, there's a difference. If they're giving away so much that they don't have what they need, that's not necessarily a good thing either. Because that means they can't continue to help others, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I, I think that certainly that's a valid interpretation of that card that you just talked it about. Is. Yeah. Uh, but and in some ways it just shows the darker side of abundance in the sense of too much. So now it's too many people asking for. I have an abundance of people that are asking for things from me, but I have to have the the ability to discern so that I can mm-hmm. maintain enough abundance to continue to both provide for myself and help others rather than be drained myself, which then means people I was helping also have nothing to come from me. Mm-hmm. So. so there we go. For the cups suit, my choice was the three of cups. Um, now going through them, one of the little key items, when I was going through a Rider Waite deck, uh, one of the key things for me was that there's harvest fruits um, present, there's pumpkins and grapes and things in the Three of Cups. But to me, the, the Three of Cups is the least complicated of the Cups cards. Like, the Cups cards tend to show relationships or people's emotional state, and they tend to be very complex, with the exception that Three of Cups is just celebration. Celebration of what is. Celebration of the love you have in your life. Celebration of the friends you have. Um, Sometimes people see this card, and especially in a relationship reading, they think, oh no, the friend zone. Uh, Or like you get this, you know, what what, what should I be doing to find the great love of my life? And they get the three of cups. And it's like, go be with your friends. Go celebrate with the friends you have. Maybe you'll meet somebody there. Maybe like, but go to a bar with friends. Like, celebrate what is. And I talked about not making this relationship. So I will say, I'll go back to, uh, if this was an, a financial reading, you might talk about what are your skills that you already have? What, what is on your resume? Who are your contacts uh, in the business world? Who are, you know, who's on your LinkedIn? Who, what's your network look like? You have so much. Don't get into a lack mentality with the three of cups. It's, it's a celebration of all that, um, all of the relationships you have that 
uh, will be of benefit to you in any sphere, including in a career or financial-based reading. And, and again, I think to me that speaks to the true nature of abundance because we get so focused on relationship and love and finding the one mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know we often lose sight of the important, loving, supportive relationships that we mm-hmm. have in our life. And, you know, and what happens when somebody starts going out with somebody? What's that classic thing where all of the friends feel like the person has just disappeared and now they only spend time with the person they're going out with and suddenly they yeah. have no time with their friends? And mm-hmm. that is not abundance. I mean, yes, you may have an abundance of friends and social circle, but you're not acknowledging it and you're not cultivating and maintaining it. You're neglecting it or taking it for granted. And that is counter to what true abundance really is about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, for me, what I chose in the suit of cups was the seven of cups. And the reason mm-hmm. for that is, like you know, on the, one, on the one hand, seven of cups is often a card that is associated with um, imagination and daydreaming. And so here we have this abundance. It's kind of that thing. I know this is not very new agey, but it's that thing of, you know, if we don't limit our imagination, it, it's that idea of if you dream it, you can be it. So if you, have an, if you allow yourself to have an abundance of imagination, if you allow your imagination to have an abundance of opportunity to go where it wants to, then you find that you can dream bigger and that you stop limiting yourself in terms of seeing what's possible, who you can be, what you can do, what you can find in your life and in the world around you. Um, But I also felt like the Seven of Cups represents an abundance of opportunities uh, and possibilities because oftentimes this is a card that represents having so many things to choose from, it's hard to focus or it's hard hard to to pick the one thing to put our energy towards. We want it all. Um, And that to me is also abundance. It, It reminded me of a conversation I was just having with somebody earlier this evening because they were talking about how they were in a really good position. They have a job, but now they have like two or three other places that they're that they um, applied to and are interviewing at. So they they have a choice. You know, they're waiting to hear from each one so that they can mm. then choose which one they want to pursue. And that is a really nice position to be in. It's an abundance of opportunity to choose from. Uh, and that to me is what the Seven of Cups is really about. This you know, abundance of of options in front of me that all look good, that all have the potential to make me happy, and that's why it's hard to choose or to let go of any of them because we think they're all great. And so that's a really nice state of abundance to be in. It's a quality Um, problem. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, So that was why I chose the Seven of Cups. I like it. I like it a lot, especially in career readings that comes up and, it's like, you know, in the olden days, you might be somebody's apprentice or your father was a Cartwright, so you're a Cartwright, you know, whatever it is. I'm thinking of Ponderosa now. But anyway, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, now, you know, when people, you don't even have to have a, your degree from college in your career field. You know, people get English degrees and they, you know, become marketing directors. It's like, it's, you know, it's, there's a, a a great blessing in the abundance of choice, you know, in a first world country. Um, but 
it, it has it, within it it has its own sort of not problem but issue to be resolved, which is like well now that you have an abundance of choice, how do you do that? You know how do you pick one? Right. Like and, the Seven of Cups always reminds me. It, it reflects abundance because it reminds me of like going into a grocery store. And this never ceases to amaze me. Going into a grocery store, and let's say you're going in to buy mustard, you go to the mm-hmm. aisle to buy mustard, and you are confronted by 300 different types and brands of mustard to mm-hmm. choose from. Yes. You know, there's, there's many people around the world that would love to be able to even have the option of choosing between two different types of mustard, if not just mm-hmm. one. And here we are almost overwhelmed because I'll see people stand there like just looking at the choices for five minutes trying to decide which mustard to get or which <laughs> cereal, you know, which cereal to get. And really that is a sign of abundance. It is but a sign of abundance. It also, also it creates a bit of a paralysis and sometimes too many choices is more difficult than having to choose between just two or three things. Yeah. It. I, I mean, I'll, go, I'll just go down the rabbit hole if I talk about. I don't know. I was gonna like say like it's sort of. It represents also an abundance of of sense of self. Like when you're looking at that, those different mustards. You're not, you know, they're not. You're, each of them represents something different. Like, am I organic guy today? Am I cost saving? Am I, you know, primo I, deluxe guy? Like, am I fancy grape pone guy today? Yes. And part of that is, you know, related marketing creates meaning. So yeah. <laughs> one of the things. So anyway, um, for the, okay, for the majors, I was going to try and be really cool and explain why something maybe a little off the wall, like judgment represents, you know, the ultimate expression of abundance. But I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to back down the ladder a little bit. The, the, the Empress to me is very much an abundance card. It's, uh, Mother Nature provides all that we need. It is the idea of being uh, mothered to a child is like ever all, all of your needs have an answer have 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 can be met somehow in a natural way. You know, food mom mom physically makes food. You know, for the first year or so of your life. Um, Love, you know, love in the Empress card, if it's representing a man or a woman, is sort of unconditional, you know. Uh, and to me, the Empress, and, you know, but with the pregnancy, it's the idea of infinite potential, or not infinite potential, but great potential. And I see that as a wonderful symbol of abundance. So if someone had, uh, for example, some sort of, project, you know, careers in their career that they, they wanted to launch. The Empress says that you have the access and the resources and support that you need to give birth, figuratively, to this to that which you want to create. So it's absolutely an idea a uh, uh, a card of creation for me and therefore abundance. Um, I, and I, would, I think that's probably one of the classic cards that it, people yeah. would go to for abundance. I cheated. <laughs> no, that's, I think that's fine because there certainly is truth and value in mm-hmm. things that have 
stood the test of time as representing these things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I chose for a major card, and it kind of continued my theme, um, was the star card. Because the star represents the abundance of eternal hope, and it also represents the abundance of having something greater than us watching out for us and pointing the way. And also there's there's a healing aspect in the, the star card, and it's very much about I allow to flow forth from me because I know that it will flow back to me and that I will never be depleted of what I have just because I'm allowing it to flow out of me and to share. And by doing that, it also replenishes what there is to come back to me, as well as may stimulate things that I hadn't known about to come back to me when I need it. Um, And so the star card for me was very much along those same lines I had mentioned earlier for abundance. It's, I have enough and more than enough that I can share and allow to go out to others because I know that by doing that, it will also then come back to me as well. So I'm always in a state of abundance and never feel that state of lack because I know that whenever I am depleted or needing something, it will flow back to me, oftentimes in the same measure, if not more so, than what I allowed to go out from me. So if I held on to and hoarded, then I can't expect very much to come back to me when I need it. So if we go to some of the cards we've chosen, like your Three of Cups, if I have been very hesitant to make or to cultivate and maintain the connections with other people, then when I'm feeling alone, I can't be surprised that there aren't a lot of people right there to help me come out of that state of loneliness. But if I have always been willing to share and to connect with and not build up the walls and been open to maintaining relationship with other people, then when I'm suddenly feeling down or lonely, I'm I'm very pleasantly surprised or reminded by how abundant my social network, my friendships, my loved ones are around me that I have to draw from. So for me, the star card was about abundance in that way because it was another indication of abundant hope and optimism uh, and that idea that I have enough that I can allow it to flow out of me because I'll never be completely depleted. And when I need a little bit of refreshing and recharge, there will be something flowing back to me. Yes, I, I think that's um, because where there's where there's hope, you know, where, as as you're describing, like there's a way, you know, there's a way to create more. Like there's there, there there's the stars, all that possibility. Right, and it and it and it reemphasizes what I often talk about, which is the star card shows the abundance of hope, and it means that we always have hope. We never mm-hmm. lose hope but we're willing to let go of expectation because expectation means we've put some sort of condition and therefore I'm I'm not going to give or allow to freely flow from me because I've set up conditions that if they're not met, I'm going to hold on to what I have. Whereas hope 
says, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there, and therefore I'm just going to have the faith and trust that when I need, it will flow back to me as well. So Mm -hmm. it's that abundance of hope and a lack of expectation. Very cool. So we would love to hear where other people find abundance in the tarot. And if you want to leave us a note on Facebook... (laughs) We would love Please. to talk to you about abundance, <laughs> where you see abundance, especially um, if you have a deck that's unusual. That's not the one of like you know a Rider with Swift mate, little, a Rider Way clone. You know, tell where where in the thoughts, where in the Marseille is abundance. And and even if you aren't a Tarot practitioner, we'd also mm-hmm. just love to hear how you define abundance. What does abundance mm-hmm. mean to you? How does that get reflected or symbolized or represented in your life what do you look at that you see that says because really that's what tarot is it's symbols Mm -hmm. so we're looking at things that are symbolic and then we're seeing that those symbols represent abundance to us when we look at them so even if you don't do tarot what is it that when you see it represents abundance to you in yourself in life in the world Um, and even more broadly what does abundance mean to you we would love to hear that as well on our Facebook page, which you can easily find at facebook.com slash the Amethyst Oracle. Well, people have had an abundance of us so far. Do you think they're ready for Christopher? (laughs) I believe so, but I I think that Christopher, our conversation with Christopher is simply going to add to the abundance. It certainly is not going to be too much. It's just going to add to that abundance of what you're getting from the show this evening. So... um, Grab yourself a little cup of tea, a little something to nibble on, and then you can sit back and relax and enjoy our conversation with Christopher Penzak coming up next. And a quick reminder, if you'd like a reading and you want to get into the queue, you can Skype in from the show page, or you can call 646-716-5510 and just follow the prompts. Usually it's to press 1 so that it will indicate to us that you want to be live on the air, and that way we'll know that you are in the queue specifically for getting a reading. So hopefully you will do that and enjoy our conversation with Christopher Penzak. Sing through my voice, play through my hands,
Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable change makers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E helping you find and shine your inner light. a witch, teacher, author, and healing practitioner. His practice draws upon the foundation of both modern and traditional witchcraft, blended with the wisdom of mystical traditions from across the globe as a practitioner and teacher of shamanism, tarot, reiki healing, herbalism, astrology, and kabbalah in the creation of new techniques and traditions. He is the author of over 20 books, including the six-volume Temple of Witchcraft series, and he travels extensively throughout the United States and the world, teaching witchcraft as well as offering online classes and lectures. Christopher Penzak is the founder of the Temple of Witchcraft tradition and co-founder of the non-profit religious organization, the Temple of Witchcraft, located in Salem, New Hampshire. So please welcome Christopher Penzak. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Thank you very much for joining Charlie and myself today. It's, as always, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. And I know this is a very busy time of year for you, being Halloween and all of those kind of things, and you live near Salem. <laughs> so <laughs> undoubtedly there are some interesting things going on there right now. Yeah, it's actually it's, it's busy season. I had to uh, explain to a prison chaplain that you know this season for me is like Christmas and Easter all combined for him, so... You know, I couldn't just drop everything at the the drop of a hat. Yeah, there's lots of lots of things going on. I actually like to say I live in the other Salem, Salem, New Hampshire. We've got things going on too. But uh, um, I'll be visiting Salem, Mass next week, so that that should be fun too. Actually, I think that probably is almost interesting to people to realize that you're 
talking to someone that seemingly might be opposed to the kind of things that you do, you know, a Christian person <laughs> versus a witchcraft person. Uh, do you find that there's more of a interfaith dialogue and openness around there? I think, you know, in New England in general, people seem to be pretty open for the most part, or um, they're oppressed enough to not, you know, make a big deal about it to your face at least. <laughs> <laughs> and this particular uh, chaplain was for the, the prison system in New Hampshire, and I, I found that there's a great solidarity amongst people who do prison ministry, and, and, you know, if you're willing to kind of go into those situations, they don't seem to care whether you're, you know, what religion is, as long as there's people that you're, you're servicing and trying to help out and, and uh really donating your time for that. So uh, I've actually had really great experiences with the Christian ministers in, in prison systems. And you fairly recently in the past year or two have started the Temple of Witchcraft, the physical actual temple there in New Hampshire. Is this kind of prison work and that kind of thing part of the, the temple work or just something you do personally? Uh, it actually predated the temple. Um, it actually starts, believe it or not, when you write a book uh, catalogs and books are circulated through prisons, and so you actually have a, a high proportion of prison mail. Um, before, you know, email and websites being so popular, a lot of people's correspondences with their authors were through the publishing houses. Now that people can get you directly through Facebook and, and your website, the people who still write through the publishers are usually people in prisons. So every six months or so, I get a pile of, of mail, and I, I really tried to answer a lot of that at the beginning of my career. Um, and it just got too much in terms of volume to be able to do that and, and work with students and, and travel and teach as much as I did. So I had a couple of volunteers among students who were just really interested in, in kind of giving support and becoming pen pals and, and that type of work. And the people who volunteered to, to do that support kind of evolved more into a prison ministry. And uh, a lot of what we do for the Temple of Witchcraft, because we're not coven-based, we're not necessarily looking to crank out other covens and, and have other high priests and high priestesses teaching and have these little kind of cells going on. We really try to provide structure for people who want to volunteer, whether it be teaching or whether it be in other ways. So prison ministry has become one of those other ways. So sometimes it's just as simple as, as being someone's pen pal. And we've actually started up a correspondence course now for people who are in prisons. And quite a few of us now do in-person visits. So it kind of evolved through the temple, and, and right now I'm doing it through the temple because that's what gives me my credentials to be able to go in as a minister. But um, we've had people volunteering in our, our community for, for quite a while in a lot of different capacities. And the, the temple's broken out into 12 different ministries. One, I'm just curious if you can explain that, how that is structured, and then what other things you do. What, what does the prison one fall under, and then what are some of the other ones that the temple does? Sure, sure. Um, we have a very star-based kind of mystery mythos, and uh, we use the Zodiac as a model for our organization. So we've got um, the basic structure of the temple is there's a, what we call the mystery school, which is the core of our education, and then we have what we loosely call a seminary program, which is our high priest and high priestess training, and as the years develop, we hope to kind of add more to um, professional skills in, in terms of, of really being ministers in a, a professional context. And then we've got the ministerial church, and the ministerial church is divided into 12 ministries, and it gives opportunities for people in the training to serve, and it also gives us ways to interact with the, the greater community and the, the specifically pagan or, or witchcraft communities. So each zodiac sign has kind of an outer world function of how it reaches out, a more intermediary function that's a little bit more um, to the witchcraft and pagan communities, and then often a mystical function that, that may or may not be seen visibly. Um, 
and so each of the zodiac signs, you know, kind of it's based on the quality of, of the element and the the cardinal fixed and mutable qualities to kind of give you characters for it. So prison ministry relates under Capricorn because Capricorn is ruled by Saturn and Saturn having bindings and restrictions and limitations and, and really taking responsibility for your actions. So um, in our, our tradition, we look at Cancer and Capricorn as kind of the mother-father axis. So a lot of our men's mysteries and men's groups falls under Capricorn. Our prison ministry falls under Capricorn. Um, and a lot of the, the kind of deeper mysteries of relating to the God and the Horned One and the, the Divine Male um, and teaching classes that are a little bit more intense on that type of experience falls under Capricorn, while the opposite really falls under Cancer. So uh, women's mysteries, the childhood ministry of, of working with kids, and kind of communing deeper with the goddess in all her forms, but particularly the Great Mother, falls under Cancer. And uh, each of the different ministries has a, a lead minister that kind of oversees their activities, and each lead minister can have a couple deputies that help them out with things. So, for example, I'm the lead of Sagittarius, and Sagittarius's archetype is the teacher. So I oversee the mystery school and the seminary and a lot of the scheduling of just general education classes. Um, where kind of one of my partners in it is the Libra ministry. And the Libra ministry has been really important because they do mediation. So they do a lot of our conflict resolution. A lot of the leaders in Libra actually don't come to the bigger events. They purposely kind of keep themselves a little bit more separate so they could um, help out in those situations and not be a, a, appear as biased. But they also handle the kind of outer publicity and public outreach and do the higher education classes. So things like um, mediation training and conflict resolution and um, looking at your ministry as a business or ethics, you know, all those will fall into the educational branch of Libra. But Sagittarius and Libra kind of work together to, to provide opportunities to our, our ministers. I, I'm excited because being a Capricorn myself, I realize if I came to the temple, it would just be natural for everyone to just call me daddy. That's right. Uh, and I'm just imagining as a Taurus, we would just be in charge of food, right? Actually, Cancer's in charge of food. Taurus is our environmental ministries and animal ministries. Oh, okay. What about the people with seafood allergies? <laughs> seafood Does allergies? Cancer still take care of that? <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> uh, so, and, if, and if people were interested in the temple, is it, is it um, templeofwitchcrafts.org? Is that right? That's our website, and we have all our structure and all our bylaws and little organizational chart and everything on there that explains it's probably a little better than I'm doing. <laughs> um, and now we try to maintain a bit of mystery and, you know, stay in the mysteries with this show. Uh, the title is The Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist. So I'll leave it up to you to ponder what we might focus on here. <laughs> um, but can you maybe talk about where, well, first of all, actually I'd like you to maybe speak to what your definition is or thoughts are around the difference or similarity between divination, oracle, prophecy, and fortune-telling, and oh, then where those things fit within the Temple of Witchcraft structure, as well as how the tradition approaches things like divination and oracular work. Okay. Um, well, you know, we're definitely in favor, I'll start with. Um, we teach more traditional divination tools in our second-degree training, but we do a lot of psychic development and intuitive work in our first-degree training. Um, the way it's divided is a lot of the inner skills and the energy and the kind of listening to your gut feeling and, and uh, culminating in some astral travel exercises that are, are really more about remote viewing and getting tangible results and psychic diagnosis, which can be verified. 
um, in terms of people who have a diagnosed illness kind of culminates our first degree stop. So we're, we're very much into getting information from nonlinear sources and having ways that you can verify it to kind of prove that these mechanisms exist in a, a tangible and real world way. You know, I think a lot of people focus so much on the visionary state, but it can be hard to tell what's a delusion versus what's a true kind of psychic journey. So I think if you train people in, in ways that they can verify, they can start to feel what those muscles feel like. So if it takes them outside of the verifiable realms, they have a, a greater confidence in what they're experiencing and can kind of weed out what's the inner voice that's doubtful and, and kind of delusional and what's the inner voice that's really pointing hmm. in the true direction. I definitely could use a bit more of that whenever I'm trying to be in a vision state. I spend a lot of time questioning everything I see. Like, wait a minute, did I intellectualize that? Did I intellectualize, like, did I make that happen? Did I make a goddess appear in this scene? Like, that sort of thing. It's well, we have a little trick for that. You know, if you feel that you've made up a goddess, or you feel you've made up a, a spirit or character, try to change them. And often when they get pissed that you try to change them, that's a good sign that, you know, you're not really in control of that vision. You might be interfacing with it and kind of meeting it halfway, seeing it through your own lens. But um, when they kind of exhibit, you know, their, their own will towards the situation and get messed up when you try to hijack it, that's often a good sign that you're interacting with something. And, and I think just the practice of the more verifiable things gets you a good sense of, of when you're using those muscles. We have a, a psychic diagnosis healing group where once you've learned the skill, you can continue to practice it and also do healing distantly on people. And um, I think that's a good way to really build your confidence. Very cool. Thank you. I, I'm going to have to try that. So put a hat on Caradwin and see, yeah. <laughs> see what if, she, if it takes. <laughs> when she hits you over the head with her spoon, you probably have a good sense. Like, of oh, oh, you really cared when I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a good Thank way. It's a good, little, it's a good little check. And then uh, we do things like tarot and rune divination, and, and we kind of divide our systems into, in the second degree, between um, fixed symbol systems or fixed symbol oracles and more fluid oracle systems. So, you know, things like tea leaf reading and gazing into a crystal ball, scrying in its, its various forms, whether it be smoke, fire, clouds, whatever you're gazing, but kind of stimulating the creative psychic mind, we think of as a, a fluid oracle system. And then things that have a little bit more of a fixed symbol, whether it be tarot or um, runes or I Ching or Ogum, um, over the course of the different degrees, we'll introduce people to that. So in the second degree, it's tarot and uh, runes. In the third degree, we talk a bit about oam. Um, in the fourth degree, we really get into ceremonial stuff and, and go deeply into the spiritual meanings of the tarot and you know, looking at them as the paths on the tree of life. So people get a good exposure to different things, and, and we encourage them to use that also as a basis before you take action for spell work, You know, before you decide, I have to do a spell. Maybe you should do a little reading, usually with a fixed system. Because I think with fixed systems, people really, you know, a lot of people interpret the cards based on, on their intuition and what they feel the card means. And, and I think that's good, but I think that also needs to be balanced with what does the card actually mean. So, you know, if you ask, should I cast this love spell on somebody and the card you pull out is the tower, you know, you can try to spin it to say, you know, oh, oh. it's really a great woman. <laughs> and, and, you know, this will just be a very electrifying relationship. But probably that's a good omen to say, maybe not now, maybe this is not the spell to do. So divination before incantation. I would agree with that, absolutely. Okay, I like it. And then we get into more, um, I guess what you'd call shamanic oracles, like more of the invocatory priestesses and priests where the gods speak messages through you. We actually do a, a big public oracular working on the Feast of Akate every August 13th. 
So it's kind of our special ninth public Sabbath. Um, and no matter what day it falls on, whether it's a Monday or Saturday, we do the Feast of Akate on August 13th. And uh, we have three priestesses. Um, although we've done some trans, you know, gender bending type stuff where there's been a priest to do it. I was one of the priests to do it one year um, and bring through the goddess Akate and ask people to do um, oracular work. So people would come up individually and have a question and, and the goddess would speak through the oracle and um, receive information that way. And that's been extremely popular because I think it's not something you see in, in big public events. And we really spend a lot of time preparing for it. And um, I was really inspired by a queer mysteries group that uh, is a convention or a festival that happens in Ohio called Between the Worlds. And that was the first time I was really exposed to that in a big public forum. I'd, I'd been to Norse oracular workings that were strictly for the Norse community. But um, this particular event actually related so many different types of rituals, but particularly the Sakate ritual, because Sakate was the matron of the festival. And uh, almost every year we followed it up with something similar. So that kind of inspired me to include that, that type of working, specifically with Hakate as the queen of witches in the Temple of Witchcraft. And you've referred to uh, the god, the goddess, spirits, etc. Does Temple of Witchcraft work particularly with a specific god, goddess, or pantheon, or does it focus more on helping people develop the ability to connect with whatever god, goddess, or pantheon may be calling them so that they can more effectively communicate and work there? I would say both. Um, we have kind of our own mythos and some very kind of cosmic views about deity that I think if you had a personal connection to deities that are in a similar vein, you might find that you, know, you can relate your own personal experiences and mythos to it. Uh, Hecate is definitely one that you know we honor as kind of the mother of witches, but you know my envisioning of Hecate is very different than other people in the temple because they have more of a personal relationship with her, and I see her as more of the the universal soul and the you know really kind of cosmic connection. Um, in our sabbats, you know, we do a lot of the traditional neo-pagan sabbats, and there's a lot of deities that are classically associated with them, so we often honor those deities, and they show up in a lot of our public rituals like Lou for Lunasa or Bridget or Breed for Imbolc. Um, and the Morgan has played a, a really strong role in a lot of people in Caridwin as well. It's played a very strong role in a lot of the founders and key people who've organized this. So a lot of our public rituals will influence those. Although we've got a couple that are very um, outside the, the normal sphere of things. Many people in our group are really devoted to Ganesha and Lakshmi. So they kind of play a, a special role in our temple. and We've got an altar specifically to them, and, and I feel that they both were very helpful in, in obtaining the necessary resources to get our physical space. But the teachings themselves really lend yourself to this idea that, you know, whoever you connect to, work, work with who shows up. So if you're working with somebody that's not of the, the norm of what we're all talking about, we really encourage students to work with who shows up. And um, part of the level five training that's our seminary we use the archetype of the zodiac, but people get to pick the individual gods that they work with for each archetype. So, you know, we'll talk about the great mother, but whoever shows up as the great mother for you, and you might be anchored in a specific mythos and pantheon, let's say Celtic, you know, but you could also have a much more eclectic mythos if that's who shows up for you, because I think we live in a, a multicultural world. So we wouldn't tell somebody, no, you can't work with that deity, or you should be working with this deity. We might have specific rituals that work in a, a particular framework that, you know, we might encourage you to work with the weaver goddess is how we look at the great kind of cosmic goddess. But whether you think of her as the Norns or whether you think of her as the Greek fates or whether you think of her as something else entirely, 
when we do a ritual to the weaver, you might connect to that energy, but we won't tell you one particular face is the way you have to be seeing it. You know, we really believe in you work with who shows up. So well, that's pretty cool. And since the tradition sort of encourages sort of a Renaissance man or Renaissance woman approach to different kinds of divination, uh, you mentioned, with, you know, using fixed systems, more fluid systems, oracular work with deity, um, and also psychic development. What have you noticed about people's ability to use one system once they've had experience with others, meaning like tarot readers who also are training to be oracular or, um, or oracles for a particular deity are also tarot readers who are encouraged to learn about scrying? Hmm. Uh, that's a great question. I, I would say an observation. I think people who can think and live more mythically are have a greater fluidity to switch systems with success. And I think people who think and live a little bit more concretely often get really attached to the system that they work in and have oh. different thinking or switching outside of that. Like, you know, one of the oracles that we have for most years, um, a priestess named Matuka, who's a, a great leader in, in our organization, um, she's a great reader. She's also created her own divination system called Hoops of Life. And she's also a great oracle when the priestess comes, when the goddess comes through her. But I think she lives so mythically and magically. She can kind of, you know, fluidly move through those different things with, with equal grace. But, you know, I know a couple of people who are really, their set thing is tarot. You know, they just do tarot. Mm -hmm. is, you know, they think in tarot. Or, or I know somebody else who just in the temple thinks in astrology. And, and everything is related through the lens of astrology and, you know, has difficulty relating to other stuff. I love that turn of phrase, living mythically. Um, I think that's a lot, it's a lot kinder than saying, she's a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's kind of some inspiration that goes along with that. You know, I, I want to live more mythically now, actually. So. <laughs> and I know oftentimes there's a um, emphasis, I think, when people are learning something, people, teachers will often say, you know, just focus on learning this and learning this really well before starting to dabble in something else. But I'm wondering if that might get in the way sometimes. If somebody's new to the whole divination kind of thing, if maybe learning how to do tarot, but then also starting to learn oracular work as well, helps to keep them from getting too set in a, a way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I was at BATS, the Bay Area Tarot Symposium, and a couple of the classes I went to really involved, um, like, visioning whatever came to you before ever pulling a card and saying that, or there was actually one where you put the card under your butt and seeing what it was showing you before you actually looked at the card. Um, Feral Humphrey, always good for that. And um, so, so I'm curious, just because you've taught for so long now, if you think that maybe sometimes it's harder for somebody who's been doing, say, tarot for a long time to be willing to shift over and trust that process of just seeing what vision comes to them without something physical in front of them to give them a symbol to start to interpret. Right. And so, so I wonder if you might have a, a tip or, or some advice for people that are thinking about starting to study divination as well as people that are already familiar with one particular system as to how they might best go about starting to go into it and get the most out of it and be most open to it. 
Well, uh, I think for me and the way that I teach and the way I've been taught, um, it's been really good about the balance of the different sides of the practices that we have. In our particular system in the Temple of Witchcraft, that each degree kind of swings in a different direction. So if you're actually studying with us, you can't get too complacent in, in one thing for too long. You might decide to then delve further into something we've introduced you to. Um, and I think that's that's good for any type of magical system or divination system you're learning is to realize, you know, what is your natural inclination and strength, but to really be a good balanced individual, you might need to move out of that natural inclination. It's like, you know, the old ceremonialists, if you were a good psychic, they forced you to do ceremonial magic and get your body moving and, and do ritual. And if you were a good ritualist, they forced you to do mediumship and, and psychic work and divination to kind of get those gears going. And, and that's always been kind of my mode of it. So I think if I've been you know, really focused on something that's got the rigid symbol system like tarot or runes that things have a, a specific meaning to. Um, I've always encouraged people to do more of the kind of creative, intuitive stuff. And then also the people who are just like, oh, I don't even learn the meanings of the cards. I just, you know, I follow my gut. I make them sit down and kind of, you know, learn the, the meanings of the cards traditionally. So I think wherever you tend to be leaning to make sure you take time to swing in that other direction could be really helpful to, to not get stuck in a groove and not get stuck in a rut. So I think having multiple kind of pans in the oven at the same time going, you know, I might be really focused on what's in front of me right now that's in a front burner, but what's kind of on the back burner and, and can I take the time to bring that up front and, and to, you know, really devote some time to it. You know, I think we can get really, uh, magical people tend to get obsessive, you know, in, in many ways. No. <laughs> a good way to deal with that yeah. obsession is to, you know, not get so fixated on, on just one thing that that's, that becomes your identity. You know, can you swing into these other areas? A lot of what we do kind of moves from the inner to the outer to the inner to the outer um, in our different degree work before we bring it bring it together. So um, I think having that balance, you know, sometimes you can do a great reading with never opening your eyes. And uh, sometimes it's really good to read for somebody and have things to show them because that helps them as well. And you should be able to do both. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm both encouraged and excited now to know that the best way to be a diviner is to be a swinger. <laughs> I was thinking that too, but uh, no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, having a, you mentioned the obsession, but yeah, having that high degree of of focus, you can kind of work yourself into just too deeply into a groove, and it's nice Absolutely. to have a different perspective. Now, speaking of the cards, there's rumors among the spirits and on the astral plane that a Christopher Panzac TM tarot deck might exist at some point. Is there anything you can say about that, about what it would be like or what your focus is for it, or is that... Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I have talked for quite a long time about both a Temple of Witchcraft um, grimoire, a Book of Shadows, and a tarot deck to go along with it. Um, And I think the thing that slows me down the most is I, I really, this, and not to be unkind to anyone else's stuff out there, there's so many things that are just really pumped out with a lot, not with a lot of deep symbolism to it. You know, people tend to focus on the major arcana and that's beautiful. And then the, you know, all the court cards and all all the minor arcana is very um, bland. You know who you are. What's that? You know who you are out there. Um, (laughs) We don't have to name any names. And, you know, for a lot of people it serves them, but I, I really think, you know, I started studying tarot. My first teacher required, not recommended, but required that we learn off the Thoth deck from Aleister Crowley. And, you know, people love it and hate it. And I think um, if you start there, it kind of screws you up for some other tarot studies. I had to kind of unlearn it to learn the Rider Waite and, you know, get a, a clearer sense of the traditional tarot. 
but there's such contact to that deck. Like the spirit of Thelema lives in that deck and those figures that are painted on it are living entities that you can scry into the deck as well as know its traditional meanings. And I think it stood the test of time because it's a contacted deck. It has deep, rich, occult significance and correspondences. So I really don't want to make something unless it can have that richness to it. I'm not saying, you know, I I'm, need to have the level of uh, intensity of Aleister Crowley, but I want it to be a, a, a deck for our tradition. So I want the spirits and images that have been built up through our community and the correspondences, which may be similar to, but slightly different than, you know, traditional tarot correspondences. I want to, you know, have the, the basis of magic to it. I want each tarot card to correspond to an herb. I want each tarot card to correspond to a gem. I want each tarot card to correspond to a totem. Um, and, and the different astrology that we associate with it, and, and along with all the traditional tarot meanings, and really have an evocative, spiritually contacted um, tarot come out of that. So, you know, right now I just have this big chart of correspondences, and, you know, as I talk to people and have my own experiences and talk to my students and talk to our other priestesses and, and ministers, you know, see what they see about different things and um, just kind of build up a richness. Even if all those correspondences don't go in the photo, I'll know that their energy is behind it because they were part of the the making of it. Even I'm kind of obsessed right now with geometry and the idea of the geometry of the cards. And I'm studying Hindu statues and how the different positions of their legs and arms aren't arbitrary. You know, the, the geometry actually plays into, you know, the sacredness of it. And if I'm going to draw something, I don't want it just to kind of be willy-nilly. I want there to be a, a pattern behind it and, and a deeper meaning behind it, even if it's not apparent that sustains mm. it. No, I agree with that. I was reading, uh, I think it's Barbara Moore's uh, book on tarot spreads, and she was talking about how, like, our brain, you know, unconsciously interprets sort of the layout of, of the spreads, but I'll probably also be true for the cards themselves. That there's incredible meaning. And you do find what you were talking about in Buddhism, because all Buddhist statues are made with the same proportions whether they're three inches tall or 300 feet tall. You know, it's always like the head is always a certain proportion to the body and all of that kind of thing. And it has an effect even when you don't realize it. And I think translating that into the deck and into cards really is kind of like what divination is about, being able to access and see what isn't obvious but still being affected by it. And so I think working that in would be really interesting. You even think the same proportions, you know, the same proportions of the same idea shows up in Egyptian statues right. and Egyptian temples, you know. And I, I, I want that science of the sacred in, in what we're doing. I don't want it just to be, um, although I think intuition and, and feeling and artistic expression is important, I think there's also that balance with the, the more technical and how can we have the two come together. Well, just like with sacred geometry, if you do that, it actually enhances the ability for the intuition to go where it needs to rather than being hindered by too much structure or rigidity. Absolutely. You know, a lot of the great, great paintings have such a sacred geometry structure behind it, but if you don't know what you're looking for, you know, it feels right, but you, it's not obvious, it's not clunky, and that's kind of what I'm looking for. Very cool. Now, so over the years, you've written quite the library of uh, <laughs> books, but 10 years ago this year, when we were all the same age that we are now, you came out with uh, Gay Witchcraft, which was uh, phenomenal for that sort of emerging, at least to my mind, it seemed like emerging queer, pagan, mystic scene. And I was wondering, 
if you have any, um, I don't know, thoughts on that book 10 years later, and also where you sort of have seen the queer mystical or queer magical community evolve from that time? Um, it, it's really kind of mind-blowing to think of how much has changed. I, I every so often get a, a funny letter of complaint by um, someone younger in the queer community, usually a young gay man, um, who, who will respond with, well, I don't know why you're making such a big deal about this, or, you know, this isn't like it at all. And, and I have to then kind of explain, well, this is kind of where it was 10 years ago. And, and you know, I was writing the book was the three years before that, you know, and, and yeah. um, it's kind of the attitudes that I grew up with. You know, many people who are queer who practice today don't even come across the whole gender polarity, boy-girl issues that, you know, definitely were an issue when I started. So it's funny to see that bias of thinking, you know, why are you making such a big deal about it? Nobody cares about that. You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, well, read a book from 1980. And, you know, <laughs> the problem, you know, or that was... Their little queen. Yeah. <laughs> right, I'm sorry. It's it shifted. So it's kind of, it's funny to see that, you know, the bias now is the other way, which I think is interesting. Um, I think there's a lot more in terms of um, queer magical groups and communities that are out there. I can't tell you, uh, you know, a week doesn't go by on Facebook where I don't get added to something that's, you know, queer, queer spirits or gay men's or gay witches or, or anything, which I think is great that there's so many resources and, and so many ways to connect. But, um, you know, that was so lacking that, that 10 years ago. Um, so I find that really interesting. I'm, I'm a big part. The book actually led me into one of my spiritual communities. Um, I got invited to speak at a festival maybe the year after it came out um, called Between the Worlds. And um, I had such a great time there with my partner Steve and I that we eventually ended up joining the, the town council to be as part of the staff. And I do the publicity for that, that group now. And a lot of my closest witchy friends, you know, and, and people I've learned a lot from and, and have been mentors and teachers and, and brothers um, have really come out of that that experience. So I think that's been pretty amazing. And just watching other groups pop up that are similar and um, doing their own thing and, and watching other teachers that are focusing on kind of queer mysteries and being successful with it, you know. Um, a lot of people felt it was a big gamble for me to be that overt about it and, and, and talking about it in the way that I, I did. But I pretty much just try to write the books I wished I had, you know, mm, and yeah. where that came from. Um, but it's interesting to watch how it's all kind of kind of growing and... and uh, you know, just even the the contact that I have when I go out and speak now, you know, there'll be a, a good percentage of, of gay, lesbian, transgendered, bisexual, which is out there, you know, we're very open about it. And when I started, it was a little bit more, you know, taboo or hush-hush or people, you know, didn't overtly talk about their sexual identity as a part of their spirituality and paganism. You know, it's it's kind of grown grown a lot more than it had been. So I'm very excited about that. So funny because I'd read I'd read um, City Magic and Spirit Allies at that point, and then I saw that book coming. I'm like, oh, he is Christopher <laughs> Penzak gay? No, there's a gay terror. You know, Gary Witch writer. That's so cool. And now putting the prophet hat on for a bit, where do you see the queer spirituality movement? Um, where are where should there be growth? What what what's still needed at this time? Since you're the father of this movement in certain ways. <laughs> I would not say that. <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting, the, the change of culture, you know, and deepening that culture and kind of creating our own community. I mean, I think we're all more out and recognized and connecting. Um, but I think asking those bigger questions of, well, what does this mean for us? Where are we going with it? 
Um, there's some purely gay traditions that are out there, and I think it's interesting to see how they're developing. I, I mean, I think some of the same challenges that all of witchcraft is having is also for kind of gay and queer witchcraft, um, deepening the culture, deepening the community, um, what are our social responsibilities, what are our, our mystical practices, and just kind of going deeper with it all, I think, are the, the, the big questions for it. Um, an interesting thing for culture, a friend of mine who was one of the founders of that festival, um, Michael Lloyd, wrote a book on the New York kind of queer pagan scene through the lens of the life of Eddie Bozinski, the founder of the Minoan Brotherhood. And I think really seeing um, the whole history and realizing that, you know, there are people doing this, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'd shy away from saying that, you know, I've done too much for it because there's people that are, you know, were doing so much more beforehand when it was a lot more difficult. So, I'm going to get letters about Harry Hay now that I've called you the father of the movement. Of, exactly. uh, maybe you're, maybe you're like the gay uncle. I, I'm thinking more, you know, Leo Martello and, and Eddie Bozinski and, and uh, Herman Slater and, you know, all the people that were out doing that. I think we're really we're even going back to Alex Sanders and, and being openly bisexual. Um, it's really interesting to see, you know, the history and, and have that all come together. So I find that kind of fun. And I just... I'm less focused on it myself right now in our, our temple and our Gemini ministry. Um, we've got a queer mystery stuff and, and it's been on and off trying to, to get that together because we're also kind of struggling with how much of it is separate and how much of it comes together. Are we doing something just strictly for gay and bisexual men? You know, where do lesbians fit into that? What about our folks in our temple that are transgender? There was really the, you know, great brouhaha of a few years ago of, of, uh, where transgender people fit in various mysteries that are considered to be all female or all male. Um, we have a very welcoming policy, and you know, however you identify is where we'll, we'll bring into it, and uh, and just finding where people who don't identify on either side, you know, um, we've got a couple people in our temple that you know identify as both or neither in terms of gender, and um, you know, sexual orientation is all above. So you know, how do they fit into some of those mysteries, and how can we create safe spaces for everybody to explore? So I think those will be some of the challenges. How do we do that with sensitivity? Very cool. Well, thank you for writing that book. It was very important to me when I was the same age as I am now. And, <laughs> and you, you mentioned, you know, similar to some things going on in the larger community. Do you also think there's the risk, because also a big issue right now in the pagan community is a whole, well, I would like to think it's a discussion, though I think it devolves a, from there a bit sometimes, about this whole labeling and splintering of groups and who's this and who's that. And it seems when, like, gay paganism was kind of starting, you have a sense where everybody's in this together. Even if they practice differently, right. they're still very welcoming and understanding and encouraging and supportive of other people. Whereas what we're seeing in general paganism right now is this whole argument about who's what, and if you're this and believe that, you can't be a part of that and all of that kind of thing. Do you think that's a danger as the openness and the development and evolution of, of gay paganism starts to uh, evolve and mature? Well, I think for all paganism and, and witchcraft and magical traditions, I mean, the different labels serve us because they help you figure out where you may fit in or where you best want to spend your time and energy. Um, but I would hate to see that sacrifice the sense of sisterhood and brotherhood for the, you know, the entire movement. I think no matter how big we get, you know, we're still a very small minority. Um, and, you know, people can keep on quoting the census stuff, saying that we're the largest growing religion and all that. I'm not quite sure I buy that, but, um, 
the the idea that no matter how big we get, we're still not the dominant force. And I think that's okay, because I don't think magic and witchcraft necessarily need to be the dominant force. I'd like to see more of our ideals injected into greater society. But um, I think there's a greater sense for me of that brotherhood-sisterhood. And, and for me, I'm I'm kind of you know, new age hippie in a lot of ways, and, and the Aquarian ideals of Aquarius as being the age of um, lateral relationships and lateral organizations and, and brotherhood, sisterhood, and a certain level of, of consensus, although I'm a big believer in will-based consensus. You know, if you want to do something, run with it and see who, who wants to be there to help and, and coordinate with it. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I, but I think there's also great opportunities for that brotherhood and sisterhood. I've not necessarily found that, but I don't really deal with a lot of the people that are so worried about the minutia of how we label ourselves or who belongs to this, who, who doesn't. Uh, I look at the, my ancestors as the archetype of the witch with the big W, and anybody who identifies or would be identified by the outer community as witch, which is why I think I, I relate to so many of the New Age practices is too, true, because, you know, during the Inquisitions, you know, whether you're reading tarot cards and, and identified yourself as, you know, a Christian mystic who, you know, had these profound experiences, or you were an old-fashioned pagan, they'd all be considered to be heretics. They'd all be considered witches. So I, I find a solidarity in that. And I think that's important to still encourage and to teach. So, you know, when I teach and when I deal with people, however you self-identify, I think, you know, particularly when we're talking about queer people in, in general, there's a sense of other. I think when we're talking about witches and pagans, there's a sense of other. So I really try to be embracing of the other. Part of our, our mythos in terms of working with Hecate and the Feast of Hecate is we have a story of how all the different gods picked their favorite different people. And, and you know, the kings went to Zeus and all the beautiful women went to Aphrodite and um, you know, all the strategists went to Athena, but Hecate took all the outcasts. Hecate took all the people on the edge, and she brought the witches about to really minister to those people and to help keep those connections. So, you know, even though it may be difficult at times, people identify as other, I feel like, are a part of our, our greater spiritual body, and, and that sense of embracing the other and embracing the outcast and, and finding solidarity amongst those who don't fit in is a huge part of my spiritual work. So, as people who may be um, finding that part of themselves that they feel doesn't fit in and finding themselves gravitating towards paganism or temple of witchcraft or whatever and to bring it back around to the idea of divination. Um, as they're starting to explore that, one, what have you seen is often the biggest stumbling block for people in trying to approach or learn divination? And two, can you maybe give a tip for what would be a really good first step for people to start wading into the waters of divination or oracular work that they could use to feel comfortable doing that and not feel overwhelmed? Uh, I think the biggest obstacle um, for all these practices, whether it be divination or, or any other type of mysticism, has been fear. You know, I think a lot of people who feel maybe other or feel intuitive and drawn to this, but don't dive into it, often don't dive into it because they're afraid. They've been taught that it's wrong. They've been taught that it's evil. They've been taught that it's from the devil. Um, or they've just been afraid that they'll be wrong and they'll be considered to be crazy. So I think the idea that, that really embracing that this is real and that it's possible um, and it's nothing to be afraid of, uh, a big model that I always like to go back to that's simple that you know anybody, whether they identify as a witch or not, um, is the idea that magic and magical spirituality is, is a conversation. And I think divination is a part of that conversation. I think 
spell casting or prayer or ritual is another side of that conversation and to really have a clear conversation with the universe through your spirituality you need to be able to listen and you need to be able to speak so I think even before you get into divination learning to quiet yourself learning to meditate learning to kind of feel within your body what feels right what doesn't feel right um, learning to listen because a lot of times people come to religion and spirituality and, and magic um, always wanting to talk. You know, they feel unheard. They want to do their spells to get the things that they want. They want to do their rituals so they can seem very powerful. But I think meditation and divination are ways to listen. So kind of just getting to that quiet space and, and whatever system you're starting out with, just doing something little every day. Pick a card every day, pick a rune every day, you know, whatever it may be. And that can work up to the bigger things. But just using it every day, even if it's just kind of getting into meditation and, and you know, staying there for five five minutes and saying, you know, what do I need to know today? What do I need to focus on and what comes to mind? And, and using that as a guide, uh, I think is huge. But I think just being able to quiet yourself and, and to be able to listen really kind of enhances all these practices. Excellent. I think that's sound, sound advice for people at every level, but uh, definitely for anyone starting out, that would be excellent to think about, especially the, that meditation practice that once you get it going, can be so useful. Um, so before we let you go, are there any upcoming releases or events or anything that you would like people to know about? Um, well, a companion to my latest book. My, my latest book was The Mighty Dead. Mm -hmm. um, with the An excellent book. Thank you. Um, we have a fundraiser actually coming out for the temple. We're hoping to have it out by Samhain, but it's probably going to be a little later than that, called uh, Ancestors of the Craft. And it's an anthology, which I'm the editor for, and essentially it was just um, essays of different ancestors. Most of them are, are those we think of as founders of traditions or authors or teachers. Some of them are very well known, some of them are a little bit less known, but they've all somehow contributed to what we think of as the craft today, whether they were ceremonial magicians like Aleister Crowley, um, whether they were full-on witches like Gerald Gardner and Alex Sanders, whether there are people in the community who you might not even really know that much about but have, have got a strong influence in some area of the country. And basically we tried to find people who were connected to them in some way to write these kind of personal stories or sharing personal teachings of what these people meant to them. Um, and it's a good introduction to a, a lot of people that you might not normally hear so much about or, or learn things about them that you know might not be from the more sensational sources. So that'll be coming out hopefully in November, and it's a 100% fundraiser for the Temple of Witchcraft. Everything besides printing and shipping all goes to the Temple of Witchcraft. Amazing. So does ever, do you ever think about the fact that someday some, someone's going to put together an anthology and there'll be a section with Christopher Penzak? <laughs> That'd be kind of weird. I try not to think about that. <laughs> Once upon a time, long ago, there lived a man. Grandfather of the gay pagan. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Gay uncle. Long okay. Galaxy Wonderful. What, what's, the, what's the companion to the Mighty Dead? I mean, where else do you go from there? <laughs> well, that's the the Mighty Dead was the how-to book, and this Ancestors of the Craft book will be kind of like, let me talk about these different individuals, and it's less um, how-to technique, and it's more of the history and the personal okay. anecdote. So it's a nice little companion for that. Um, cool. We tried to do the same thing. I did a plant spirit book, and one was the actual teachings. And then we did a book called The Green Lover, and each section was a different plant and different people had a connection to that plant. And it can just kind of deepen your knowledge on, on specific plants. So this is a way to deepen your knowledge on specific ancestors. Excellent. Very cool. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you or contact with you? Uh, uh, probably through my website, Temple of Witch, uh, excuse me, ChristopherPenzak.com, or 
Um, if you're interested in the temple teachings, templeofwitchcraft.org, and there's contact info that will go to the general account. But to me personally, ChristopherPenzak.com has a contact email. And if people are interested in what the temple teaches, it's not just that they have to be physically able to get to New Hampshire, because you also teach online as That's well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we have a pretty robust uh, online correspondence course, and everybody gets their own mm-hmm. mentor. And as people develop, we ask them to mentor others, so it kind of continues on. And we've got students in South America and Australia and Asia, you know, all over. So there's a, a kind of a global community growing. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. I really appreciate it and appreciate all the advice for budding diviners out there. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'll see you guys at PantheaCon, I hope. Woohoo! Definitely. We'll see you at PantheaCon. And if you're listening live, you can call in very soon for a free reading from both High C and myself. But before that, we'll be talking about living the queer life, pulling cards for the community. And if you're interested in a reading, you can Skype in or the phone number to call to get in the queue now is 646-716-5510. And we'll be right back. And I am here with my co-host, Charlie, and you're listening to the Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist. And, of course, we would like to say an abundance. 
abundant amount of gratitude and thank yous to Christopher Penzak for joining us this evening. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation. And that brings us to our regular monthly segment of Living the Queer Life, where Charlie and I draw cards to see how everyone listening can best live up to their queerest and fullest selves in the upcoming month. <laughs> and so we decided to yeah. keep with the theme of the show and focus this particular month's segment, not not so generally, but in a sense um, with a little bit more of an intention by looking at how we can live abundantly in our queer life or how we can have the greatest mm. abundance of queerness in our life <laughs> during this month. So, Charlie, pray tell, yes. what card has come up for you in response to how everyone listening, whether today or at any time in the future, if you're listening uh -huh. to an archive, can best live abundantly in their queer life? Well, it's actually a little funny. I got the Six of Swords which I talked about in the beginning of the show was my swords card for abundance. And it was the hardest one for me to come to. I really looked at that sword suit um, quite a bit. But now with the filter of this particular topic, how to live your queer life abundantly, I think it makes more sense to me now than before, which in that the idea of embracing queerness, of, of embracing the identity um, has with it this connotation of leaving an old life behind and starting something new. And some people, when they do that, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And they um, just absolutely reject everything from before, rejecting any faith, rejecting family, uh, not going to Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and they move to a gay mecca. This, this was more common before than it is now. And uh, embrace this, this identity of queerness to the nth degree, to the exclusion of um, all other forms of identity. And that is limiting, and that creates sort of the clone syndrome that people complain about, where all, everyone has to listen to the same music and dress the same and like the same things. Um, and just experience sort of a one mainstream <laughs> uh, idea of being queer, which is odd. It's odd to think of a mainstream identity of being queer, but it can we can create these sort of cookie-cutter experiences. And on the other side on the, the, uh, of that, there are people who embrace the queer identity, but they never allow themselves to be open to something that they are initially uncomfortable with. And this sort of becomes what I think of as sort of the internalized homophobia experience of embracing queer life where you, you just because you're, let's just for the sake of this, say gay, just because you're gay, you... Um, that doesn't mean that anything's different about you and you just, uh, usually the phrase you hear is you just happen to be gay. Like that's how it works. And there's never leave, never going forth, never kind of 
going to those new shores. So in this card, you see people getting into a boat and uh, objects are in the boat. There's a chest in the boat. There's clothing in the boat. So you're still taking your essential self with you into the queer experience, experiencing other, bringing in new experiences. You still have to maintain a sense of self. Um, otherwise, you know, otherwise you're just sort of replacing your own personality, which is a little crazy. But at the same time, you have to leave some things behind in order to bring some new things into your life. So... I don't know. For example, uh, the idea, a, a big one, uh, some people who don't quite understand, I don't know, who have a hard time embracing things, um, they find themselves being opposed to gay marriage because they have very traditional ideas about what marriage is and there's no reason that, they, that, that gay people need to subvert that or they can't let them, uh, they become very, very, very uncomfortable with women expressing masculine qualities and men expressing feminine qualities because that is, you know, going too far. So it's sort of like, and you're on this queer journey and you want to have the opportunity, which I think of abundance as opportunity, to experience the fullness of what this life can offer you you have to find a balance of remembering who you are and remembering what your story is and at the same time stepping out of one mode of life and into another for a while to really allow yourself the opportunity to experience that. Um, I, I often, as I'm an old codger, I find myself sometimes, because I, I worry that the new generation of gays who've never experienced uh, the same levels or maybe of homophobia, uh, for whatever reason, because of hard work, um, uh, don't ever feel the call to, um, you know, go to a gay, you know, gay pride parade or make gay friends because they... Uh, um, just don't see that need. They're, they don't have that need in the way that maybe other generations had. And while this is a quality problem, it's uh, because it represents a, more, a greater acceptance. It to me, I'm looking at six of swords. Like there has to be at some level the leaving behind, and the embracing of the new. Did any of that make sense? Did I? It did. Where although I have to, I, I have to, I have to tell you, this will show just how queer I am. Because when you said there was a chest in the boat, my immediate thought was, oh, is it hairy or smooth? Because if it's hairy, right. I'm jumping okay. in the boat. Well, um, the early 90s, it would be smooth. But now that everyone uh, issues manscaping, it would have to be a hairy chest in order to find acceptance. That's right. <laughs> Isn't that weird? And, and I think that the card that came up for me is going to perfectly support the one that came up for you and Ooh, what you've been I love saying. Support. Um, well, um, because the card that I got is the strength card. Mm -hmm. And Ooh. so 
You know, and I think it's important to remind people that when we say queer, we're not just talking about a person's sexual orientation. Queer doesn't necessarily mean gay. It just means this idea of, and this is where I think the strength card is really going to, is this idea of what is it that makes you so uniquely you? What is so strongly you that it wants and needs to come out and that it may go against what is the norm or what is the average. Um, it does not want to conform, and that's basically what makes it queer. And so the strength card says, have the strength to be yourself. Have the confidence to put that uniqueness out there rather than trying so hard to fit in and to conform and to be what other people or society or even your social group says or tries to get you to be. You don't have to go along with the crowd at the expense of losing yourself. And it's when you lose yourself to the crowd that you lose your queerness. And so the strength card is really saying that to fully live an abundant queer life is to fully and completely embrace who you are and what makes you you and to have the strength to live that loud and proud, as they say, rather than trying to dilute it or quieten it down in order to fit in because of what someone or a group of people or a particular segment of society may try to tell you. And I think we see that even in the gay community, because if you're part of one group of people, you're expected to act or look or do things in a certain way. And when you step outside of that, you're suddenly seen as, well, you know, you get bitchy comments thrown your way or you get ostracized from the community in some way. Um, you know, so the, the, and I think the strength card reminds us that if we're strong enough to be ourselves, that we will also find that there is an abundance of other people who are willing to accept us for ourselves and that there is groups of people, communities, et cetera, that will accept us, but it's because we have the strength to be who we are rather than to try to fit in someplace and then not feel accepted or not feel fully satisfied because we're not living our queer life. Love it. Excellent. I I, I see exactly what you did there. (laughs) So, So hopefully (laughs) hopefully that helps people a little bit just to think about what they can be doing and what they may not be doing that is key to being their fullest and queerest selves, which really simply means being your true and unique self rather than trying to conform and fit into what is considered the norm. You know, so often people give the advice, just be yourself, as that, if that's easy, when, as you so eloquently described with the, your, your interpretation of the strength card, being yourself can be very hard. Um, just just be yourself, you know that that sort of throwaway piece of advice. It's sort of it's very easy to lose a sense of self. So good on you. I like that. I like that interpretation a lot. Well, yes, and I think that's where the strength card comes in because it says it's not necessarily easy to just be yourself, but the mm-hmm. strength card reminds us that if we 
if we look within ourselves, we actually have an unlimited reservoir of strength that can support us and allow us to be that. But we have to be willing to dive into that unlimited reservoir and then be willing to stand strong in that rather than be intimidated into backing down from that. So it's not easy, but the strength card reminds us that we do have the strength to do that. So uh, I think we'll take a quick little break and then we will come right back. And we, we, may, we may have yet another little reading to do for people when we come back. So they don't want to miss that. <laughs> Old fat kids. <laughs> Walk the beauty way, talk the beauty way, feel the beauty of thinking of ways to bring you a fresh new perspective. Check out this lineup of our newest shows. The Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist, featuring Firefly Willow's L.I.V.E. favorite, Heisey Lutmers, and his co-host, Charlie Harrington, on the second Tuesday evening each month. A Shamanic Life, hosted by John Carousella, on the first and third Tuesday evenings each month. What's your prescription for balance? With Dr. Glenna Calder, the first Thursday afternoon each month, and Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney, the third Thursday afternoon each month. Introducing our newest show, the second and fourth Saturday mornings each month, From Beyond, with mother-daughter psychic mediums, Nadia Shapiro and Dr. Barbara Williams. We're excited. Give us a listen as we continue to create new and entertaining ways for you to shine your inner light. Join us at Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. And we're back. 
I'm Hi C, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlie Harrington, and you're listening to the Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist. And in our previous segment, Charlie and I asked the question how we can most abundantly live our queer life. And for this final segment, we are going to expand that, and we are going to look at how we can... Um, how would you say the question for this, Charlie? Um, is it I, what is abundance or where do you find, like... Yeah, so it's really kind of looking at what is abundance. It's really looking at the the big macro. I guess it's one of our wisdom questions. Yeah. Um, so not only are we looking at how to live a, a, life, a queer life that's abundant, but how do we know what abundance is when we think of it in the big universal scale of things? So when you asked that question, what came up for you, Charlie? So I got the three of pentacles. And um, it's funny, as I did that, the nine of swords fell out of the deck. And so I took that as cautionary that the pursuit of abundance can be debilitating and crippling because of lack consciousness of like this idea that I don't have enough, you know, which is a legitimate fair. Um, but if, if I don't, ha- you know, worrying I, if I don't have enough and it kind of creates that. I'm not trying to be like the secret here and say that everything that you lack in this life is your fault. Uh, but um, just don't get wrapped up too, too, too deeply. But so for me, the, I got the three of pentacles, which to me, abundance is finding your place in the sort of cycle of creation and um and uh sort of sharing that uh so to me the 3 of pentacles often represents that not every, you know not everyone has every talent not everyone's oprah and so you find your skill, what you're good at, and you blend it with the skills and talents of other people, and together you create um, abundance. So to me, abundance, I would agree with uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Warren of the, the Republican, or sort of the Democratic Party, who said, like, you know, we don't arrive at abundance on our own. We don't, if that's fortune, if we're being very literal about abundance, or just whatever resources, it's not something we create solely in and of ourselves. And that Nine of Pentacles person will need to realize that they experienced abundance because of their connection with others and how blending their talents with the talents of others fosters creation. Does that make sense? It does. And I think, you know, when when you said it was that card and you kind of were going this direction as well, to me what it made me think of is that abundance is found in community and that the Three of Pentacles is really about community because it's about people coming together and working together for a common cause and to create something greater than what they can do on an individual level. Um, And when you were talking about that idea of the 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 lack mentality 
and that nine of swords falling out, I didn't really see that so much as pointing to people who truly are struggling and truly are doing without. I saw it more for people who already have enough, but then they become so consumed by thinking about more and more what they would call abundance, that enough is never enough. So these people that have like $10 billion, but that's never enough for them. They still Mm. want tax breaks because they want to hold on to more of their money (laughs) rather than letting their money go to helping other people on a, a community scale, whether it's nationally statewide or whatever um, I would definitely but agree it's, with that because it's the uh to me that that swords it's in the head as opposed to like the five of pentacles which might show actual lack of resources the nine of swords it's it's fear rather than reality right um and the card that came up for me for what is abundance was the reversed sister fire card which would be the reverse page of wands And reverse just meaning it came up upside down. And to me what that says on the one hand, because oftentimes the Page of Wands is seen as a card that's very much about that childlike playfulness and, you know, life is fun. And I think the reversal simply reminds us that abundance is not always fun and games. Abundance is also serious business. And we have to be serious about abundance. We also have to be sometimes serious about how we approach abundance and what we do with abundance when we are lucky enough to have it, rather than to just look at abundance as something that we get to fritter away playing with. So if we're fortunate enough to have a lot of money, that doesn't mean we get to just play and buy our seventh house somewhere in the world and our 28th car and waste resources. It it says that the more abundance we have, perhaps the more serious and the more uh, disciplined and wise we need to be in how we both acknowledge and are grateful for that abundance as well as how we put that abundance to use. And the Page of Wands to me also speaks to, I would look at the Page of Wands as perhaps being a card that is probably the most, I mean, maybe the Knight of Wands a little bit too, but because you have the childlike aspect of the page, which is very unfocused in some ways and it's kind of new, um, I would look at it as perhaps one of the most ego-driven cards um and or just it's not even driven it's just living in pure ego and so when it reverses that page of wands becomes a card that says abundance is when we are able to let go of and step away from our ego to recognize the difference between need and want and the ability to See that what we have is enough and that sharing with other people who don't have enough in whatever way doesn't somehow mean that we are going to deplete what we have or lessen ourselves because we will still have enough and we will still be perfectly okay. It's the ego for what we were just talking about a minute ago that really starts to come in there and says, yeah, but I've made $10 million, now I want to make $20 million, and I'll do it at all costs. I don't care if people get hurt along the way. I don't care if I get to have my 
$1 million bonus at the end of the year if that means that a couple of people have to lose their jobs because of budget cuts. The reverse page of wands really is saying when we can let go of that ego and the ego, that really kind of internal child ego that says, I want what I want. I mean, that page of wands is kind of that child that just says, I want my way and I want what I want when I want it. Um, and mm -hmm. when we can let go of that, then we can experience true abundance because true abundance comes from the ability to release the want and to be willing to share what we have rather than get as much as we possibly can and somehow that represents abundance. Uh, and I think it's interesting that that page of wands to me, there's always, she has a bit of that fear, um, which when it's upright is a motivator. It's, it's a little kind of a sexy fear. When it's reversed, like you were talking about with ego, that fear takes over the whole thinking process. And, we're in, and instead of reacting in spite of the fear they feel, the fear is the sole motivator. And in conjunction with the other card that came up for me earlier, the strength card, because for me the strength card is about taming our inner demons and domesticating them so that we can put them to productive uses and creative uses rather than destructive of ourselves or the world around us. So it certainly is a perfect companion to that page of wands reversed because the strength card says, have the strength and the courage to confront your inner demons, the things that get control of you and cause you to do things that perhaps aren't in the highest good or the highest interest. And the Page of Wands would say that usually is having the strength to tame and overcome and keep in check the ego. Mm -hmm. So that's what I have to offer. Take it about to the abundance. streets, y'all. <laughs> Well, I wish. Mm -hmm. With the megaphone, yeah. With the megaphone. That's right. Um, so, well, I wish everyone, wherever they are, a an abundant holiday, whichever holiday is coming up for you when you hear these uh, these words. So, but for those listening in November, I wish everyone um, a very happy Thanksgiving, and I hope it is a time of abundant joy and. Uh, a prosperity for you and your families. And I wish everyone the same, and I also challenge them to think for themselves, what does abundance mean to you? And can you perhaps start to see abundance as having what I need and willing to share the excess that I have with those who don't, rather than simply seeing abundance as how do I get more? Excellent. So thank you very much, Charlie, for having been here once again with me this evening. Well, of course. And, uh, of course, our thanks to Christopher Penzak for having been here and joined us in conversation. And we will look forward to having you join us next time. Our next show will be in December on Tuesday, December, uh, December 10th at 8 p.m. So we will look forward to having you join us for that. And as always, feel free to jump over to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the Amethyst Oracle and give us some feedback, give us your comments, let us know what abundance is to you. If you decide to look for cards, tell us what cards you choose to represent abundance because we always enjoy being able to interact with all of you that are listening. And if you have suggestions for the show, share those as well. 
So, until next time, I bid the adieu, Charlie Harrington. <laughs> Sayonara. And I say farewell to everyone listening, and may there be abundance of blessings and surprises around every corner as you move through life this month. The Amethyst Oracle. Divination with a queer twist. Divination with a queer twist. The Amethyst Oracle. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Convergence with John Carousella. Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.